0: Hey there listeners, thanks for tuning in to Samira Storks. This is a podcast about the dreamers out there and their stories of entrepreneurship. So if you're curious, creative, and you're ready to make an impact on this world, then this is for you. Welcome to episode 32 of Samira Storks. I was joined by Dennis Mortensen, a serial entrepreneur and the founder of x.ai, which has created an email agent or bot that schedules meetings automatically using artificial intelligence. Sounds too good to be true, as scheduling is the bane of anyone's existence, taking on average seven interactions. By CCing Amy.xi into an email chain, it can liaise with the recipient and respond to agree on a mutually convenient time. In this episode, we hear how Dennis combined his own personal pain point with his computer science and data background to create Amy, discuss the use of AI to provide a utility service delve into the latest developments in the field from self-driving cars to automatic language translation, as well as the impact of artificial intelligence on other industries and when society might be ready for it. In an extended version for this episode, there's a whole host of ethics and unanswered philosophy questions that we delve into. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thanks much for having me.
0: So, in a line, can you tell us what x.ai is?
1: Sure. So, we spent the last short of four years trying to build this intelligent agent that can schedule meetings. And to explain exactly how that works, imagine that you sent me an email saying, hey Dennis, I'm going to be in Manhattan, first week of December, do you got time to meet up for a Diet Coke? I replied back, as you would, and say, you know what, sure. I'm up for a diacook. I have CC'd in my assistant, Amy, and she can help put something on my calendar. Now, Amy is this machine agent that will remove me from the conversation, reach out to you in natural language, have this back and forth, really a negotiation, if you will, and move that towards a conclusion. And once she figured out that we're supposed to meet on December 7th at one o'clock on 200 Broadway for half an hour, she'll send out an invite. And if it feels like you heard this before, that's because you have, and it's called the human assistant, or really, it's called you, because you do this today. So I like this idea of us not trying to reimagine the process, but trying to reimagine who does it. And for us, that's our assistant. So hopefully that makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely. And we'll get more into the technicalities of what underpins that and how... Amy is the intelligent woman that she is today. But firstly, I'd like to start with you. So you have a background as a serial entrepreneur and both academic pursuits uh, within the data science field. Can you talk about those?
1: Sure. I've been around as an entrepreneur now for 23 years. And this is our fifth venture And we've been so fortunate to have three positive exits and one that didn't pan out as we had hoped for. And that's all good and fine. All of them, though, have been data-centric, as in us trying to see if there was not a piece of data that we could somehow extract and commercialize. And that's been really the theme over the last 20 years. And I have a CS background and have been fond of data since way back when, and you and me didn't even talk about big data or analytics or AI, but really, we've always talked about being able to let on to data. And this is really, again, just another data venture, because we're trying to make meaning of the human language, for this particular subject matter.
0: So I want to move on to the field of artificial intelligence itself. Andrew Ng, who is a thought leader, I would say, around this topic and machine learning, he's a Stanford professor, recently at TechCrunch described AI as the new electricity in the sense he said it would affect and disrupt every industry, perhaps in ways that we don't know, we can't even envisage yet. What are your thoughts on that and can you explain why that is the case?
1: To begin with, I have a ton of respect for anything which he suggests and if he suggests something, you pay attention. I do think he's right. Just like it'll be very hard to argue against the idea that software, just technology in general, have transformed almost any industry. And even the industries for where there's been little impact, you and me could very quickly assume that over the next some time period, they will also be hopefully positively disrupted by software and technology. Once we've injected software into everything, I think we'll see that a lot of the software that helped us take this first step was passive. Okay. So you and me wanna do a new venture, we get together, we need to build some sort of financial model, we open up Excel, and over the next two days, we're gonna hack around in Excel and come up with some sort of model that will have us take over the world. But you and I did all the work. And I think what he's suggesting here is that the software will move from being passive to being active. As in, it'll seem almost naive in the not too distant future to just have a passive piece of software for where It doesn't do anything unless I push it. Tomorrow, and I'm putting this in air quotes, I think the software is somehow expected to make decisions on our behalf. We'll probably be less about doing the little nitty-gritty work and spend more time in creating the framework and setting objectives for what I want the software to do. It's not that I don't use software to set up our meetings. I said before I had my Amy or Andrew intelligent agents managing my calendar and schedule my meetings, I would do it myself, but I certainly used email, an email client, the internet, my mobile phone, all sorts of kind of technology to make it happen. But it was passive. In this day and age, I just described the objective for where you know what? You and me should get together for a diaco for half an hour. The name used to figure out, you go do that. I actually don't really care how you do it. You can use AI, you can scream out the window, you can use 10,000 regexes. I actually don't really care. What I care about is that I ask you to do a job, you do that job. And I think that's what he's trying to say, yeah. that any past software will seem naive if it's just passive.
0: Thank you. And going back then, which I think was a, a personal pain point of you being in a situation where, you, well, where everyone has to schedule their own meetings to some extent, or their own calendar. Can we go back to the birth of X.AI and yeah, how it was incepted?
1: I think any entrepreneur really, at any stage in their venture, but most certainly in the beginning, have some frugal gene. They might not want to, but they have it, because they remember the day for where it was just them and a buddy and then it was them and a handful of people, them or 10 people. And you needed to be frugal because if I'm a little bit frugal, you might be able to hire another engineer or might be able to survive another three months. And that gene had me schedule all my meetings for 20-some-odd years straight. Not last week, not for three weeks. <laughs> and I scheduled about 1,000 meetings a year, every year. 20 years. And it's not that Take SoftBank, one of our investors in our prior ventures, would have come back to me in a board meeting saying, hey, Dennis, I've been looking through uh, the financials. I think it looks like you hired somebody who is also helping you on your calendar. We need to have a chat about that. They would just have said, hey, good call. Yeah. Right? But I didn't. I always did it myself. And the last year before we started this venture, I did this very sad thing of going back into my calendar and hand count. All the meetings I did and I did a thousand and nineteen meetings not as in yeah click 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 no hey Dennis can you do Wednesday no I can't can you do Thursday perhaps four. no you need to be earlier click 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 and imagine that a thousand and nineteen times but what was even sadder I looked into that a thousand plus meetings 672 of those got rescheduled not out of ill will just because shit happens and that amount of pain, I think if anybody can latch on to a pain which they experience and build up some venture around it, you're in a good position. Doesn't mean you can't build up ventures around things you don't have to kind of work with yourself, but if you somehow have the pain yourself, then you really care. I said, even if this whole thing doesn't end up being this massive Dropbox like IPO, I'm happy. I said, I'm just a happy kid. I solved my own problem. So that was certainly the catalyst for where there was nobody who could really debate me on whether this was a pain. I fucking hated it.
0: (laughs) I don't know anyone that enjoys it. (laughs) Thank you. And uh, good on you for doing your own self-data analysis. Uh, Kind of depressing when you might think about when you count the hours you commute or you count the hours you do these smaller tasks in your
1: life. But I would like to underline the fact that it's actually not the meetings themselves. This, this is fun by the way, <laughs> this, I, this I like, this is time well spent, this is me living a good life, you and me meeting up and chatting. Setting it up, not so much. Fair. This though, this is the fun part.
0: Understandable. And so fast forward to X.I today, uh, can you just outline how many incarnations of Amy and Andrew are there? Uh, how big is the team? Talk to us about where you are today.
1: The team is really split into perhaps three parts. There's a massive data labeling part, or really any machine learning slash AI challenge you have, certainly at this moment in time, many times hinges on a good data set. It's the same for us. There is no meeting scheduling data set which you can go download on the internet and say, let's go train on that. That's just nothing. There's certainly a lot of kind of emails here and there, back and forth, completely unlabeled. So we needed to kind of figure out very early on, how do we get our hands on that? And for us, it was really a decision for where we probably need to go craft that data set from the very first email to the email we did, you know, four minutes ago. So we have a team of about 100 that does nothing but data labeling. we can talk about exactly what that entails. We call them AI trainers because all the information they inject into the system through that labeling really becomes the decision-making powers of Amy and Andrew at x.ai. The two other parts are a very large team here in Manhattan where you sit on 200 Broadway, which are the traditional backend engineers and data scientists and what have you. And the whole company is really a data science bet. And then recently, Not over the last two days, but over this year, we've been starting to build up the kind of commercial aspects. We've taken all our R&D and productized productized it and put a price on it and are moving into market. And there's a small team that's about to be built up right now.
0: So you're training kind of neural nets then from your own original data set. Um, How many emails or interactions have passed through the kind of extra IA brain,
1: would you say? Every meeting, on average, including the invite itself, will consist of about eight emails.
0: Eight. Eight Eight emails.
1: Okay. That's about three and a half on each side. The reason that it sometimes goes to three and a half or that becoming the average is that you have multi-participant meetings that go longer. One-on-ones, if you go back and look at the dialogue you might have had for this meeting, it could have been shorter because it's just you and me. And in each one of those emails, you might have a few intents that needs to be labeled, and you have a set of entities which we need to label for. Time, obviously being one of them. Location, again, obviously being one of them. And people, you know, the participants, whether mandatory and optional, and so on and so forth. And that suggests about 10-ish data points in each one of these. We have labeled in the millions of emails over the last three plus years, but what hurts here and what people obviously know but forget is that you have to first build a model of the universe that you exist in. So if you want to create a self-driving car, you cannot create a model of the real world. That is obviously way too complex. You try to come up with some sort of simplistic model of the world that you exist in. Call it roads, signs, vehicles, pedestrians, and what you believe needs to exist for you to be able to navigate this simplistic universe. But even that simplistic universe, that becomes hard, but not just hard, how do you know you've got it right? You only know you got it right once you've solved it, but you haven't solved it yet. So you kind of have this moment where you need to be very confident and humble at the same time. So say you come up with some conceptual model of that universe that a participant can only be, for example, in my meeting scheduling universe, mandatory or optional. That is the only two states of a person in a meeting, and you forget that there could also be an assistant, a human assistant. Then four months later, you figure out, hey, human assistance exists in my universe. In hindsight, I should have known. What do you do with all the data you already labeled? Do you throw it away? So that means you're now four months delayed or you invested four months of 100 people yeah. day in and day out. Then you figure that out. Then later you figure out my version of time, which seemed like one of those things where that should just be set in stone because... Time is not up for debate. It kinda is, because people don't talk about time the way you want them to, as in, let's meet up on Monday, October 23rd, (laughs) Eastern Standard Time, at 1300 hours. No, what you say is, let's meet up uh, early next week. Early next week, or let's meet up upon my return. Upon my return isn't really temporal data but we still need to label it. That's in, you're trying to say, we can't meet up today, we can meet up later. So that model of that universe was way more complex than we had imagined. And that means we've discarded a lot of data along the way. And you can always talk about, yeah, but you could relabel. What is the cost of relabeling versus just collecting new data? Many times, collecting new data is just cheaper than relabeling. So that has been a major endeavor.
0: Have you got to a point yet, though, where you've trained the AI to be able to better label data does that make sense it does
1: make sense we're not yet as an industry really i think at a point for where the system improves on itself at that level. It doesn't mean that the system is not self-improving. It obviously improves for every meeting which we do because we become slightly more accurate. So that means the meetings we schedule tomorrow are in a slightly better state than the ones that we do today. But the idea of the system reimagining itself is easy to talk about, (laughs) but from an academic point of view it's not really what we've reached. If you even take... uh, the output of that Go playing machine of DeepMind, yeah. which in their first incarnation was trained both on kind of multiple models but on human games. The new version, I don't know whether you read about it, came out, which is now one for where they injected the rule set and it trained by playing itself yeah. and is now both beating humans but certainly also beating its last incarnation but it is still being fed the rule set. Yeah. It is not making up new rules for a slightly more exciting game of Go. Yeah. And I'm in the same state for where the meeting scaling universe is for me to define. Yeah. It is for the machine to participate in it. It is not making up a new universe.
0: What, what is Amy or Andrew's success, success percentage? And how has that improved over time?
1: It's certainly massively improved from day one. And here's the interesting thing about certain ventures the data sets if you don't have any can only be collecting by doing something that means you have this kind of chicken and egg challenge where you probably need to put out a really shitty product on day one and get really shitty results and then see how can i improve that rapidly so i'm even allowed to collect data you can somehow Sheet say you put in a self-driving car a safety driver so when the car doesn't do what you want it to do you override and then you look at it suggested we accelerated but we should have done the complete opposite so how can we learn from that we did the same again the ai trainer very early on had not just a job of labeling but a job of overriding as in you suggest we do this i think not And we would do that over and over again. The dangerous thing about any venture where you come at it with no data and you allow yourself to override is that you can fall in love with the ability to override. That means, again, if you go back to the self-driving car example, you can, in any one of those Uber self-driving cars, hail one and there'll be both a driver and an engineer in the car. It'll get you from A to B. But at some point, you need to kind of engineer for the fact that they need to disappear. Mm. If they're in the car forever, then it just doesn't matter. But you can easily fall in love with the security that comes with being able to override because you're not willing to make mistakes. And I understand it with cars. As in, hey, driving 11 Uber cars off a cliff every week is probably not a good option. But we certainly have the option in our universe to make mistakes and be okay with it. I'm not saying it's kosher, I'm not saying I like it, but it's the only way we can get to the other side where this becomes fully autonomous. So we started years back allowing ourselves to be willing to see mistakes. The thing here is that we can somehow overcome mistakes, because we live in this asynchronous setting. So many systems are completely synchronous, so the car needs to take a decision. It won't wait an hour, I said. You're driving at 80 miles an hour. There is no waiting. I need your decision now. In my world, there's a massive delay because we deal with humans. So you might not reply back in two hours. Mm. Even if I say something wrong, you can actually correct me. So that means the ultimate outcome of the meeting is that you and me wanted to meet up might actually just happen. But there could have been an extra turn in the dialogue for where I suggested we meet up at 200 Broadway in Brooklyn. But you would say, No, it's 200 Broadway in Manhattan. And then the whole thing gets self-corrected. You might not even see it as an error. You just see it as in, oh, okay, there was a confusion, and we solved it, and we met up. So that has kind of decreased dramatically. I'll give you one because it's kind of throughout the system. There's no kind of single percentage point I can give you. We have, I wouldn't call it the worst kind, but perhaps the most visible type of fallback which is that i just don't understand the kind of siri like hey what are you talking about here's 10 (laughs) web pages which is kind of a retarded fallback i said i'd much rather you said nothing kind of give me a uh, alexa style beep beep okay what i said in my danish english just wasn't good enough for the machinery right and we have something similar right now that happens one out of 300 emails but we might have to say hey I didn't get it. Yeah. Could, could you rephrase that? But even that one out of 300, we actually do understand something, and we're trying to kind of refine our fallback for where I actually did pick up something on location, but didn't understand anything we said about time. Okay. Perhaps I can just eliminate the location thing as in, I got that, but the way you talk about meeting right up after your mom's birthday, I, I need more than what you just said. So those are kind of the very high levels of accuracy that we're at right now. But Without me going completely kind of uh, enthusiastic yet. But here's the funny thing. What we found though is that the initial assumption for where if we can just surpass the human assistance, we are in positively kind of positive territory, that turned out to not be true. There's the expectation when you apply machinery to something that it is way more accurate than what the human did before, it needs to be faster. More accurate, and you and me can think. But that is unfair. I said, I go to bed thinking, hey, you're paying sixty thousand dollars for a human. I will sell this to you for seventeen dollars a month. So perhaps you could give me a little bit of slack. No, it's the opposite. They're giving me no slack.
0: Wow. Okay. So people have higher expectations yes. on the machine, even though it's it's And um, which leads us to our next question.
1: That's about to roll out. So we've commercialize this in a very similar fashion to, say, Dropbox and other companies like that, meaning that we have a individual version where you, me, and our friends can just go sign up for $17 a month, schedule unlimited meetings, have Amy work for them day and night, 10 meetings, 150 meetings, whatever that might be. And the reason that we picked 17 Not only because we've surveyed about 5,000 people, we've now worked with tens of thousands of people, is that it's a price that falls into a traditional kind of online service level. And sometimes people will compare us with the Netflix or the Spotify's, even though I would say, I'm neither in the music or movie business, so why are you making that comparison? But they're making the kind of that's what I pay for services on the internet comparison. Yes. So we will fall into that territory and we think it is a fantastic price i could be biased then we have a team edition which is mostly for you sign up but you got five guys on your team at the office say you're a pool of recruiters and you just really want to use the company credit card you want you five on it you want to move it to the company domain, you want it to be Amy and Andrew at spotify.com, and then you pay $39 per seat, and you get some of those team functionality that comes along with that. And then we're just about to launch an enterprise edition. The whole idea that you could roll this out to a larger enterprise, making sure that we're on an exchange server, that we are security compliance at a level that they expect, and all the things that comes with selling in the hundreds of seats at a time, and that is being sold at fifty nine dollars a seat.
0: I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of data privacy, but I'm assuming that anyone's data that is <sighs> kept to train your machines and networks is kept within your domain and isn't sold.
1: Absolutely, and we need to both underline bolds and continue to stipulate the fact that we are not in the data business. We are in the utility business. As in, you pay me money to schedule your meetings. I need to find a price which you think is fair, but I'm in the business of scheduling meetings, not extract value from whatever data that I might have collected. And that also means that if you go read our privacy policy, the data is yours, but I do need to extract it, train on it, and read it to be able to do my job. Just like if you hired a human, you need to kind of make sure you have a proper set up contracts in place. But when Tom comes into your office and works for you as your assistant, Tom needs to be able to look at your calendar, be able to read the email which you CC him in on and kind of try to make meaning of it and do the job that you asked him to do. And just like Tom, when he walks out the door one day, should he not work for you anymore, he can't take any of that data. Plus when he sits there on a Wednesday, he can't sit and assemble some of that data and sell it on Craigslist. Mm-hmm. And if you have the same kind of idea of how we want to both put in place our privacy policies and our terms of service, it is with that in mind.
0: So you recently raised your Series B. Congratulations.
1: We did a Series B in April of 2016 for where we raised $23 million. Then we added onto that very recently just a month and a half ago where we added another 10 million dollars to that b
0: okay and so can you um describe what you plan on deploying those funds for and what is yeah in the future roadmap i would say
1: sure so the b milestone for us was always one for where we wanted to take the three years of r d and commercialize it so we're within the milestone for we want to take that r d figure out exactly what additions should we have in market, at what price, and where do we go find that set of customers. Once we acquire those customers, how do we onboard them and make sure that they're happy? And then we ramp up revenue to some sort of magical $10 million annual recurring revenue. And once we've done that, then I think we've done what we were supposed to do for the Series B milestone. That doesn't mean that you won't see us make all sorts of improvements to Amy and Andrew. We do that every single day, like any other SaaS company, you'll see us push updates to how she understands lead time or travel time or little subtleties here and there. But that's really the focus of this particular milestone. The next milestone for us is really one for where you'll see us ramp up on three different dimensions. One, we want Amy and Andrew to be multilingual. So that's we can not only attack other markets, but more so, so that we can treat your guests with the ultimate respect. Wouldn't it be awesome for the next woman you meet up with who happened to speak German that Amy is so kind to speak German to her as well? Two, we want to be in other communication channels so that whenever you and I talk about meeting up, whether that be on text, Slack, WeChat, or email, you should be able to wake up your agent and say, hey! Amy, can you get us together uh, later this afternoon? And then, lastly, we want to integrate with all the services that kind of revolve around the event itself. Say, next time you're in Manhattan, downtown Manhattan, you and me meet up for sushi. Can't you just log into my open table and book a table at Haros? It's not that I don't know how to do that, but you do that. That's not really even AI. That's just a chore. Or If any meeting which is more than a mile away, I use Uber, can you just call one? You book the meeting, you know exactly when the meeting starts, you know where I'm headed, so there.
0: Excellent. Exciting as well. Ah, (laughs) And you often cite uh, your success as down to the blend of both the Silicon Valley technology and the development that's going on in the field of machine learning and artificial intelligence, combined with what I call a New York hustle mindset. Um, of, yeah, like the business need to meet and, and develop uh, ideas and propositions. And um, we've discussed some of the logic or at least the parameters by which Amy and Andrew are programmed. But can you touch a little bit more maybe on the technology itself and yeah, some of the, I don't know, more fascinating parts around it? I
1: certainly... Suddenly love this whole new field of AI interaction design which is slightly outside of the traditional machine learning challenges that comes along with any type of prediction you want to do in any venture at any level this is something for where if you and me again get together this weekend to hack together an app we might even call up a couple of friends some interaction designer some UI designer, some UX person and all of those have a skill set that you and I are very familiar with. But how do you design an application where there is no UI? There is no app, there is no website. There's just this dialogue. And that dialogue design, in particular for these agents, is really a new field. And it just fascinates me that we have to Not completely make it up, because there's certainly research on how to craft dialogues from the past, but it's really an interesting space to kind of see and how we can kind of navigate it. Because how do you even test for it? So in any kind of UI, you can give, if you want to do user testing, 15 people who come in for tests, some sort of assignment and a set of tasks, see how they navigate the interface and see if they use kind of the navigation you had hoped for or you had designed for them. And if they don't, then you failed in doing a good UI UX experience. But how does that work in a dialogue for where there might actually be multiple paths to the destination? You might want to talk about location before you want to talk about time. I might be the opposite. Or you might want to talk about the participants and who should be in the meeting even before we start to negotiate around when and where. And that is just fascinating to me, but not only fascinating, but also because what are the principles? Do you create a persona? If you create a persona, is the agent humanized? If humanized, does it have a gender? If it's got a gender, do you have multiples? If you have multiples, are they different? How do they talk in general? So that is just, for me, been very fascinating and again there was nobody which we could really kind of hire I said, what did I even call it who or hire for this so that's been three fascinating years on trying to craft those dialogues
0: at least when Amy was first introduced to me I didn't realize she was a bot do you think it's dishonest not to tell users um, and how do you deal with the idea of what you talked about should we be making intelligent agents as human as possible? And then how do we think about defining their personalities?
1: It's a good question. And I'm not sure I have the right answer yet. I'm sure in a decade from now, once we are fully embedded with agents doing all sorts of jobs, that we've figured out you know, the best way to kind of navigate this particular question, and the 40 others that comes on top of it. I don't think it's a game of whether I can fool you into believing that this is a human. As in, I'm not sure that's a game worth playing. So we are certainly trying to be very upfront about the fact that this is a machine. And you'll see that it's even in her signature. And we even have initiatives in place for where we try to educate the guest if it's the first time I've seen you of late for where we just introduce the fact that we're machinery up front. But I like the idea of doing a job so well that you stop caring that it's a machine. And I think there's a difference between the two, the one of trying to deceive you into something for where I then think I might have won if you don't recognize it's a machine. I'm not sure what the value is of that. But I certainly find value in you Forgetting its machine so that the only thing you focus on is the job at hand. You should just really tell the machinery What you have in mind for when you and I can best meet up And then it's the machine's job to figure out exactly how to extract you know, information from that. So we are perhaps certainly more blunt today than we were earlier on mm. and I'll even give you an example, but this is years back for where we actually didn't say anything not out of uh, ill will yeah. just out of uh, hadn't really figured it out yet to be mm-hmm. honest and we had people kind of pull back away on successful meetings when they then met up with their client or customer whatever and there was a little bit of disappointment for hey i thought this was a human and i brought two cups of coffee and now i feel a little bit silly so we could see that it was not even that we wanted anything on it there was certainly some ha ha moments but after we kind of started to introduce the idea of this being machine, then we haven't had much pushback on it. I do agree though, sometimes people in a hurry actually don't recognize it. We need to kind of figure out how much should we need to put in front of people. I said, you must click a button for where you understand the terms and conditions of you now talking to a machine. I think that is too aggressive. So we're trying to kind of find some sort of fine line between the, the two, yes.
0: So then speaking of the impact of AI on the next generation, there have already been some I'd say very early studies um, of households with an Alexa where they're starting to recognize that kids may be ruder or less empathetic towards that machine and it might be spilling over into their real life interactions. What do we need to do to train ourselves emotionally to be able to start working with agents and Yeah, in the the next kind of 10, 20 years.
1: Super interesting question. And you and I won't have the answer just yet. I do think that some of the traditional research on the master-slave relationship can be looked at for inspiration, at least, to begin with. And in any one of those viewpoints, what you'll see is that the master tends to be the one who loses the most, meaning that if you end up being overly demeaning to one of your employees, the employee suddenly loses something, but you're the one who will lose the most, as in you change. Mm. And there's some suggestion that if you're equally demeaning, if not more, to a set of machine agents, you're the one losing. But not only that, the machine actually doesn't lose anything. So it's a loose setting for you. And what's even worse is that you might recognize the fact that you lose something, but you have no aspiration of becoming a nicer person, and you want to live your life as an asshole. Fine with me. But kids do not know any better. So they need to be taught. And the way they usually ended up being taught is that there was some sort of feedback mechanism. Meaning that if you're not nice to somebody in the playground, They might just punch you in the mouth. The very first thing I keep coming back to whenever I think about this is that there needs to be some feedback mechanism, perhaps even some obvious form of penalty. And penalty, I think, is a very natural thing to introduce into these type of systems. And you and me use it all the time, meaning that if your friend is not overly nice today, you might actually not give them the speedy reply that they had hoped for. That's kind of a mini form of penalty where I'll reply to this text tonight or I might not reply to it at all. So I do think feedback mechanisms and forms of penalty are very likely to arrive. Say that you have a friend who's overly tardy that only half the meetings that you sit up, they arrive to. I know that as in, If I schedule your meetings, we're aware of the fact that of all the people you meet with, one of them is quite tardy. I'm probably not going to give them the 8 a.m. spot.
0: Okay.
1: Because there's just a very high likelihood that they might not turn up. So we're going to give them the middle of the day. If they don't turn up, you can continue to work your inbox. So there'll probably be some of these systems where finally good behavior will be rewarded.
0: What percentage of work done today um, do you think can be replaced
1: by intelligent agents? Making any type of prediction really only ends up being something you look at now in three years saying, why did you say that, Dennis? (laughs) You shouldn't have said anything. Don't
0: answer the question. Don't answer the question.
1: Don't answer the question. But they're so fun to play with that you always answer them and then you regret it. Almost all jobs end up being replaced not necessarily by machines, but by other jobs. So if we just accept the fact that many of the jobs that we had in the 20s or the 40s or the 70s aren't the same jobs that we have today, so it's just quite natural that whatever job you might have, it is likely to disappear. It might even exist under the same title, but it's a very different job 20 years from now. So if we can just come around to the idea that your job will not exist forever. Now we can talk about where should you then move? And when you move, does that mean somebody below you is gonna take your job? Or does it mean that it doesn't need to exist? Or some machinery took over and is now doing that job? So I'm quite comfortable, certainly, personally talking about the idea that jobs are disappearing. Many people like to put some sort of doomsday blanket over the whole thing, jobs are disappearing. Yeah, I know. They did so last year, and 20 years ago, and they will you know, 20 years from now. What I think the first phase will be, whether that is in three or five years, is that many of the existing jobs that we have will probably exist as is, but we will finally be able to focus on what we were hired to do. So take any person in your organization, say they are in recruiting, and you go ask them, show me those seven bullets that you were hired on when you came work here then let me uh, take a look at your inbox because if i can't map every one of those emails in your inbox to one of those seven bullets that they hired you to come work here on that means you're doing shit that you weren't hired to do and what i think will happen is a lot of those chores will finally disappear no you're not sitting there and fiddling around trying to figure out how you can best go to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That will be taken care of. No, you're not sitting there scanning little receipts with your iPhone trying to be re- $4.95. That will be taken care of. No, you're not setting up your own meetings. Of course you have an agent for that. I'm not paying you a six-figure salary to do email ping pong. So all of those chores, if they can disappear and we can finally get back to, oh, recruiting. Yeah, that's actually what I spend 90% of my time on, recruiting or sales or account management or customer success. So that is the first wave and for me and I know I'm overly enthusiastic about life and everything so you can just deduct this or remove it from the conversation. But that first wave I see as a positive one. And I hope that this kind of positive wave will have, you know, enough enthusiasm being built up so people can see now When some parts of my job or not all of my colleagues can be justified in this position anymore, where do they go? That they don't just go away, they go do something even more exciting.
0: Okay, well I'm I'm enthusiastic listening to this and you're right, Um, the doomsday picture is painted sometimes but what you have to realize is it's evolution and it's it's something that's been happening, like you said, for, for
1: centuries. And and again, what I kind of disagree with when people come up with those doomsday scenarios, and I get it why some gravitates towards it, because I don't necessarily think they do it out of ill will. They do it perhaps even because they want to protect a pool of people that might not be able to protect themselves. But if you can imagine some current status, and then you can imagine something worse, that means you agree there can be movement. But if there can be movement, then you also have to agree, however unlikely perhaps, that it can move in the other direction. I'm just one of those for where I agree that, that there will be movement as things to move in the other direction.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Um, what new wave or developments in NLP, computer vision or machine learning generally are you most excited about? What's the coolest application you've seen recently?
1: I'll give you two answers to that. The Now answer is probably gonna be something unsexy and people will uh, not even look it up, but Google Translate, how awesome is that? Not only that you can translate, so I'm Danish. I barely speak English. I use Google Translate all the time. We have to speak other languages at home with friends when we pick up books. And what I like about Google Translate is the, perhaps 10 some odd years where they walked down one avenue and day over day it became slightly better. And then what was it about a year ago, perhaps a little bit more, they had one of these step functions where it became way better overnight, simply by just applying a new methodology. And you can see it if you try to translate certain texts. And it's like the idea of some piece of technology that brings us closer. There's enough confusion in the world. There's enough people on different ends of the spectrum. You know what? Being able to talk to other people in different languages, how romantic is that? I just think that is absolutely wonderful. And you and me, and this might just be the crazy person in me talking, Perhaps, at some point, we can start to translate from English to English. So, if you are overly liberal, like me, or as your candidates said early on, socialist, because I'm Danish, perhaps you can translate from me to some of my friends that are overly conservative. As in, tr- see if you can translate what I really am trying to convey here. So, I'm just very much a fan of that. So, that's the kind of now. Nah. Go fall in love with that because I think the world is just a better place. The other part which I just can't not look at or not read about, and I've got nothing to do with it, is the idea of autonomous vehicles. The whole self-driving car. And people ask me, so uh, did you invest in anything? Do you work with it? Is there any real... Overlap in that Venn diagram between self-driving cars and what you do. And you know what? Probably not much But I cannot look at it. I every weekend There's another set of articles that I've saved throughout the week that I need to read and I'm just so fascinated about This happening, and it's not just the self-driving car. It's that whole set of Cascading positive effects that comes along with it whether that be on climate congestion commute time, inner cities, the the whole thing is gonna change. And what I like about it is that it's not gonna be one of those Blade Runner things. It's gonna be in my lifetime. As in, it's not so far out that I'm not gonna see this.
0: Thank you, and I I really liked what you said about converting from English to English, because there's still so much that's just lost in language and uh, expression. Yeah. So, very interesting. And um, can you tell us a funny fail story of who you've stalked in the X.AI journey and how that's gone?
1: I'll give you a short story on how I ended up partnering with our CTO, Matt, who was one of the co-founders of X.AI. I was, and it was all on me. And I was out doing this talk at... NYU Stern, so it was the business school in town. And I think it was from 8.30 to 10.30. They got the morning
0: stuff. No, no, no. <laughs>
1: the okay. evening. Okay. Okay. So not only had I been at work since 8 in the morning, and it's getting to the end of the day, but I'm in my element. And especially when it's a set of MBA kids, for where I'm trying to tell them that you pick up good things from the books in your bag and I am most sure this will be a worthwhile investment but grits tenacity willingness to endure and all of those things for where if you do not have that you just won't make it and I re- I go all in and then it's 10.30 turning 10.45 and it's one of those days where now I'm just I got nothing more like I got nothing more to add, and I'm about to kind of head out. And Matt comes up, Hey, really interesting viewpoints. I see that you're looking for uh, engineers. Do you got time for an interview? <laughs> and uh, now I'm
0: just talked about tenacity, then. <laughs> I see, see,
1: at this moment, I cannot say no, right? <laughs> Anything I said over the last two hours would be completely hollow, but on the inside, I'm crying. I'm saying, I just want to go home, get a bowl of cereal, watch an episode of Seinfeld in my underwear, and fall asleep. That's all I want. But Matt, sure, we should. Why not? And uh, we end up chatting. And uh, not only did Matt end up working in my last venture, he ended up being a co-founder here. The whole thing had a very positive ending. But it was one of my kind of personal fail stories where I now try to figure out when I say this, What are the multiple outcomes I can be married to after what I've just said?
0: Series of quickfire questions. Sure. So, first thing that comes to your mind what tea do you drink?
1: I don't drink tea. Fair enough. I drink Red Bull.
0: What was the last book you read?
1: Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. And it's a good book because it's an easy read, it's kind of romantic. You see how sometimes Nike shouldn't really exist. But somehow they overcame whatever obstacle. And the book is a little bit sad at the same time if you read it. It's just a it's a good book. I really like it.
0: Thank you. And um, what childhood character do you remind yourself of?
1: Depending on how you want me to answer. Perhaps Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes?
0: Before my time, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit more detail. Yeah. Who is that?
1: You know Calvin and Hobbes, right? Do you know? <laughs> Damn. Oh. I read every single one of those. Literally. You know. I have them both. I have all of them in Danish. I have all of them in English. I've read all of them in full. Okay. It's about a little boy, 6 years old, who's got a stuffed tiger. He believes the tiger is real, and they talk about stuff.
0: Okay.
1: And they talk about really good stuff and it's one of those things which you can read on two levels right yeah to read it as an adult you see what is being talked about here if you read it as a kid it's just funny haha yeah that is
0: what what music are you listening to at the moment what track
1: we should just go real honest here so here's a funny thing so i was in la two weeks ago for some investor conference talking to potential series c investors and I'm staying in Beverly Hills because that's where the conference is. And I think I'm staying at the hotel for where Justin Bieber lives. Because I met him three times in the left. But somehow, I wasn't good enough to kind of pitch. Because I had the conference on the third floor. So I only had like seven <laughs> seconds to do the whole we should hang. So um, let's see here. Who am I uh, listening to? Ex-ambassadors. Jungle. That I listened to yesterday.
0: I'm Bieber. What are your denicisms? So what parting or practical advice would you give to anyone looking to start a deep tech endeavour?
1: Never surrender. I think it's a mantra you should learn to sell to yourself and everybody around you. And it's very easy to give up and provide yourself justification for why this should really be an academic endeavour and I should go back to school and have enough time to do this this might even be a thesis i could uh, do it sometime but you need to somehow get married to the idea that you just can't surrender and there'll be so many obstacles especially in deep tech for where if you don't do one of the three months incubator lotteries and there's nothing wrong with that sometimes an airbnb comes out of it and great if you win that lottery but some startups just don't have that baked into them I in, said. There's no self-driving car lottery for where they hacked it together over two weeks and launched it, right? That is a decade-long, probably longer than we all anticipated, type of endeavor. So never surrender. I think that is the, the thing I just keep latching onto that you just can't give up.
0: Okay, thank you. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. This was fun. Excellent. We should
1: do it again. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening, it's a fascinating field and I hope to find more reckless dreamers in this space. As always, please do reach out on at Samira Storks to let me know your thoughts. And if you haven't already, sign up to the weekly newsletter where I'll be covering the latest developments in the tech, business and startup world. If you enjoyed this episode, Street Bees in the previous episode also discusses the use of AI to be able
1: to better predict consumer behaviours. Join me next week. Bye.